0: Welcome to Five Dubs by MDDC Press. I'm your host, Rebecca Snyder, the Executive Director of the Maryland, Delaware, and DC Press Association, which represents news media in our region. Five Dubs focuses on the who, what, when, where, and why of local news media. We'll talk with the journalists about the stories behind the news. You can find more information about our guests in the show notes or on our website, www.five-dubs.com. Welcome to Five Dubs. This week, we continue our mini-series on the nominees for MDDC's prestigious James S. Keat Foy Award, which honors a body of work reported primarily through open records. The Keat Award, among many others, will be presented at MDDC's awards conference. In this episode, Unraveling Baltimore's Harbor Place, We will hear from Melody Simmons, real estate reporter at the Baltimore Business Journal, about her investigative work on the project. Welcome, Melody. How are you?
1: Hi there. I'm doing well, thanks.
0: Terrific. Um, So the work in your nomination detailed how Baltimore's Harbor Place, which honestly was one of the jewels of the city, fell into disrepair. Can you fill in our listeners about the situation?
1: This is a that we had seen unfold right before our eyes for the past five or six years. Visually, the vacancy rate at Harbor Place had gone up, and at the same time, the condition of this uh, property had gone down. It was in disrepair. It was very old and showing its age. And as tenants started to pull out, we started to look into it a little further. What's going on? How is it happening? How can it be that the symbol of the city's uh, renaissance could go so bad, so fast? And even it's 40 years old, which some might say is a long time, but in the scheme of things for a landmark, it's not.
0: Sure. How do you start piecing together what's going on and, and how building that case in public records?
1: With public records, it really helped um, to start by making a timeline. Uh, which I think every reporter knows to do, you know, right out of the gate. Make a timeline, get your cast of characters. It's almost like you're writing a script for a movie. And then you take that and you broaden it out and kind of fill in the blanks with what you need and who you need to speak with. This particular story starts, of course, with Jim Rouse, who was the visionary developer, um, really a legend. In Baltimore for developing this property. And we kind of traced what happened from 1980 through uh, the Rouse years when the project itself took off and became the heartbeat of the city. It was sold to GGP that would be General Growth Properties, which in turn sold it to Ashkenazi Acquisitions Corporation. And so that started a really important paper trail to start to look at the price of the, of the development, the value of it, and really talking a little bit about what had happened under new ownerships.
0: So what had happened under that ownership and how were you able to, to piece that trail together?
1: Well, what we looked at through the ownerships, uh, we started to look at the tenants. And you kind of look, there's some old timers who were still there, and a lot of them were willing to talk, so that helped. And that was really kind of uh, ground zero, just starting to talk to people, figuring out what kind of contact they had had with the owners and the current I'm just going to start with the current owners which is Ashkenazi there had been very limited contact as far as um the tenants who are concerned they were paying their rent every month or we thought so we thought until we saw the public records and then um they were really required just to do um everything you know per from a one-sided standpoint. Ashkenazi, of course, was not very cooperative in commenting to the press uh, for stories about the vacancy rates over the years. They rarely returned calls. So this was an issue that we had to override as well.
0: So how do you know if they've, if you were talking earlier about how you knew whether rent had been paid and so forth. Ashkenazi is a, a private company. How did you, how do you know who paid what and when?
1: Well, what we found, we found a really, (laughs) we found some uh, gold mine in um, when we were working on the investigative piece. We FOIA'd uh, or uh, put in through the Maryland Public Information Act a request for all the emails and documents between the Baltimore Development Corporation and Ashkenazi. And we gave them a very wide window, basically from the time they bought it until the present. So that um, opened up a lot of uh, requests. We wanted to see what the back and forth was. in as all this was unwinding, Harbor Place itself went into receivership. So that opened up a whole other trove of documents through the courts. And we were able to kind of merge the acquisition of both documents to try to figure out Exactly what we were seeing here, and it was jiving very well with what the interviews were saying, basically that there was a lack of just follow up and a lack of due diligence on the part of the owner. Towards the property itself.
0: So, Ashkenazi has a, a fair number of properties uh, throughout the country, I believe. Did you broaden your investigation to look at anything else that they were doing?
1: Yes, we looked at a lot of their properties. They own Bayside in Miami, which is, um, you know, holding its own. Uh, they had a stake in the Plaza Hotel. These are some of the high-profile properties. If you go down to DC, they own uh, Union Station, the retail portion, and that's been struggling a lot with tenants coming and going over the past almost the same period of time so we looked at some of that we also looked at some of the other um, waterfront developments that came into being after harbor place was born namely jacksonville florida the jacksonville landing we looked at that and that had totally shut down and now has been demolished and we looked at the uh, waterfront property in in Norfolk, Virginia, which had gone into total disrepair and was scooped up by David Cordish and redeveloped and is now very successful. So it was a mix.
0: Well, and it sounds like there's some real strong consequences if, you know, there's basically absentee ownership that's not taking care of the uh, the facility or, or dealing with tenants. Could you talk a little bit more about the, you've done a lot of deep research on this, but where did it lead? What, what happened as a result of your investigation?
1: What we found, and especially looking at the documents we got through the PIA, was that there was a big breakdown in communication between the city and Ashkenazi, and they seemed to always be chasing their tails. And this was all written out in the emails verbally in the writing Um, we tried to get an interview with the baltimore development corporation which of course is a a public agency and they declined our request for an interview after we had received the documents we wanted further explanation and further information and they would not sit down with us so what we had to do was piece together over 900 pages from the pia and then we looked at all of the documents from the court And we saw some of the rent collections, which Ashkenazi had let some of the tenants, you know, just have a, you know, run and not pay rent. This went on for a couple of years. So it painted a picture of a development, which at one point was, you know, the heartbeat of this city that had just gone to totally to the dogs.
0: That's really depressing. Do they own other properties in in the area, or is Harbor Place the only one that's being affected by Ashkenazi leadership?
1: uh, Ashkenazi also um, acquired Cross Keys, the village of Cross Keys, the retail portion, and that is the first cousin to what happened at Harbor Place. You'll see, if you go up there today, it's the vacancies are terrible. There have been tenants moved out. It's strongly crying in need of a an upgrade and a modernization. This is in Roland Park, and it is now in negotiation for purchase by a local developer. It never went into receivership, so it's now getting its day.
0: Well, thank goodness, because certainly for the city, both those properties are are critical for economic development and for infrastructure. Melody, could you talk a, a little about how when Baltimoreans and, and others look at places like Harbor Place or Cross Keys, and they think, oh, well, you know, there's declining tenancy, and the, the leadership always has an answer for that. And could you talk about how reporting really kind of cuts in there and uncovers what's happening?
1: Yes, it's so important when you're reporting on a big story like this, and this one took six months, and it was a lot of digging, a lot of interviews, you know, up and down. We finally got Ashkenazi after a long uh, negotiation period to sit down, and they had agreed to sit down and interview with us in person, and then they scaled that back and wanted a Q&A over the email, which we agreed to because of the difficulty in getting in touch with them. But it's important as a reporter, and it's an important to know in a story that has this many layers, that you really have to keep everything organized and stay on top of just the way that the story has moved, like almost like a river. Um, over the years, because there are a lot of changing landscapes. And we also saw a lot of different owners and retailers. It started Harbor Place with a local flavor, which made it so successful. And then because the rents went up, because it was so successful, it needed to have national tenants come in to pay the rent and higher rents. And this was, you know, made it made them a gave them the opportunity to do some upgrades to it. So we did see that in the reporting too. And to be fair, you have to look at all the angles because during this late the latest run, retail itself has imploded. So that's had an impact as well. We can't blame everything on the developer and the owner because the circumstances that surrounded everything really proved that out too.
0: Now, what happens next? I mean, in in some ways, this article and this reporting really provides almost a case study in economic development for not only Baltimore, but other cities that are trying to revitalize their core downtown and or their waterfront districts. What lessons do you hope people will take away from this project and this reporting?
1: Well, I hope that people will look at it and realize You know, we got a lot of feedback, and we realized that the takeaway message was that there's a lot of concern and care for this property itself. What its future holds, nobody knows. It's now still tied up in the courts, in receivership, so it's really in the hands of the judge. And every month, a new report comes is posted with the court, and so we get a little update glimpse every month at how it's finally being stabilized. I think this is the most stable that Harbor Place has been for decades, but I do think that there is a long way to go as to figuring out what it could be for future, for any future retail and future customers.
0: And uh, it's important for Baltimore, and I'm uh, frankly surprised that the Baltimore Development Corporation didn't want to speak to you um, about this. Could you tell us a little bit more about the role the BDC plays and how you were able to get records from that entity, or not, and uh, how that figured into your reporting?
1: The BDC is a city agency. They're quasi-public, and what that means is that they have a private board, and their board is constituted of some of the top business leaders in this city. Their role and they have two floors in 36 South Charles Street, so they have quite a large staff. Their role is to monitor economic development in the city and businesses and business attractions. They have it, have it broken down by geographics in the city, so that's what they kind of focus on. They're not forthcoming. They're pretty much allergic to the press and the public. They do have a uh, board meeting every other month. That is open to some certain extent. They have closed it off before when they feel like they want to talk about a specific deal. And the press and the public are are put out. We've protested that in the past. We did win one victory with the Attorney General's office. They had closed a meeting on Port Covington TIF illegally, and they were um, they had to apologize to the public and, and make the minutes available. But this happens quite a lot. So the role of the BDC with the Harbor Place situation proved that they tried to be a player at the table, but there was not a lot of cohesive communication between the two. And the bureaucracy of the city really tied up the efforts to stabilize Harbor Place. And so there was a big problem. It was just a big cycle of woe.
0: I want to go back to something you you said earlier about open meetings. And I think our listeners may not, they may not be aware of what goes into open meetings law. And so I just was hoping you can provide just a little primer on what it, how you work with open meetings as a reporter, and then also I wanted to talk about the repercussions when meetings are closed inappropriately. What's it like working with open meetings?
1: Well, it's it's crucial to what we do. And um, it's so unusual to be tossed out of a meeting. And, you know, every reporter should just immediately stand up and protest it and get that protest very loud and very firm on the record. I do this all the time. When the BDC closes a meeting, I stand up and make a protest for the record in front of the whole group. And then we're put out, and we sit outside, and actually I take a picture of the closed door and put it up on the Twitter post. I think that every reporter should do, you know, kicking and screaming when you're thrown out of a meeting.
0: Sure. And there is also, just for our listeners, the Open Meetings Act doesn't apply just to reporters, but to everyday citizens as well. Meetings are open to the public. Reporters are often stand-ins for citizens and the public. It's our job to, to go to those meetings, so you don't have to, essentially. And there is... As Melody was saying, there is an opportunity to complain that a meeting was closed improperly, and those complaints can go to the Open Meetings Compliance Board. And we'll put links to the Open Meetings Act and the Compliance Board in the show notes. Melody, earlier you were saying that when the BDC closed their meeting wrongly, that they had to apologize to the public and put that in their meetings. Is that the repercussion when a meeting is closed erroneously?
1: That's what happened in this case, I do believe generally that's what happens they you know we're we're afforded the minutes right away so we can see what happened when the door was closed. This was a really important issue because the city was granting a tip to Sagamore development, the largest in the city's history, and we felt that they closed the meeting erroneously right there right then and there in fact, I got the <laughs> I went outside after they tossed us out and got the Attorney General's office on the phone from their lobby.
0: It's nice when all the meetings are in the same place. (laughs) Yes. So in working with these 900 pages of documents and all the the sort of data that came into this, you were talking about the the critical need to stay organized. And certainly, I'm sure digital uh, aides have helped in that. But could you talk about how it is to work with public records over the arc of your career? You've been in this business for a long time. And I'm curious about how working with public records has changed and maybe not changed over the, over the course of your career.
1: Well, it has changed. I've seen it. Uh, we're now more digital than before. These records that I got in the PIA for the Harbor Place story were actually in a giant. It actually came in in a PDF. So it took a long time. Of course, I went through it at least three or four times because there were so many pages I printed out the pages that were germane started doing um, folders with that so in the old days Somebody truly will meet you in a parking lot with a trash bag full of file folders. In the days when they had file cabinets, <laughs> and uh, I've actually had a you know a couple of meetings like that where people leaked things in paper. When the you know you had reports and you had audits, so it has changed a lot. But it's crucial to your reporting because you need to follow the paper. You need to. It's almost like follow the money when you're doing a financial story. But this makes everything. Flow as a roadmap, which a reporter needs to make a story gel like this.
0: So, as we start to wind up, you've also worked in real estate and economic development for a long time, reporting on these issues. How did you get involved in the real estate side of things?
1: Well, I've been a reporter for many years, covered many, many things. And when I was at the Daily Record, I was offered this beat. And I thought, well, let me give it a shot because the cast of characters are really great. When I was a sports writer in my younger years, I always thought that the athletes were kind of fun and goofy and it would be great to tell their stories. And as far as the development community goes, they're very interesting people. Their projects are interesting. And so it has made for almost a parallel kind of beat to cover. It's almost like covering a, you know, major league baseball team because there's so much going on and the the characters are amazing so it's good.
0: It sounds really interesting and and certainly Baltimore has such a uh, rich history in terms of its its real estate and the projects that have gone on here and it's still developing it feels pretty rapidly. What's what's going on in the real estate beat these days?
1: Well, it's pretty much jumping off the page, as we say. Um, There's a lot of developments going on all over the city. Canton is still developing out. You, of course, have Covington, which is just ramping up. You have now Kevin Plank is listed for sale Westport. So that's Mm -hmm. back in play. That's about a 25-acre parcel across the middle branch. So that's a huge property. So all that on the waterfront is still developing. And then you have Trade Point Atlantic, which is this ginormous global industrial hub out in Dundalk at the old Sparrows Point plant. That's in in the works. And then there's a lot of suburban development, such as the Towson Row, and also up in Cecil County, Little Cecil that we never really paid attention to, is now really exploding because of its location off of 95. And they have an Amazon warehouse up there as well as a Great Wolf Lodge coming. So all of these things are really, it's just money is pouring into Baltimore and the the Maryland uh, region for economic development and development itself.
0: And Maryland's really well situated, because of course, it's right on the I-95 corridor. And it's, you know, it's close to a lot of other major metropolitan hubs. I, I'm kind of surprised because your publication is the Baltimore Business Journal that you're tapped into to things that are happening in Cecil and, and in the wider metropolitan area. Can you tell us a little bit more about what the Baltimore Business Journal covers and who they are?
1: Yes, the Business Journal is a paper that, of course, it's, we publish once a week, so I call it a paper still because I'm old-fashioned, but we are a news source for the business community, um, can be hyper-local, but also statewide, because a lot of the local players have now expanded out to, uh, to business deals and other transactions in the state itself. When Amazon was um, looking at Baltimore, or actually when Baltimore was looking at Amazon for HQ2, there were a lot of players involved in that. You know, it was a massive effort. So that kind of shows that this state is small but large in that, and it was a huge business story. So we do a lot of, bit of reporting that way. We cover a little bit of politics. We cover a lot of tech, healthcare and also education. And then with the local scene, we do a lot of local business stories as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and there's a lot going on, certainly, uh, Baltimore and across the state. So I really thank you for taking some time to talk with us. As we, uh, as we end, are there any last thoughts that you'd like to leave with our listeners?
1: Well, I was thinking as we were talking about Harbor Place itself, you know, we're we're looking at when I was ticking off that list about all the projects going on in the state, and then you look at Little Harbor Place kind of sitting there, and it had its struggles, and it's kind of in decay right now. So one thing I can tell you is that I think the story highlighted and the reporting highlighted how beloved it is and how it will have, I believe, some kind of a a second wind, so to say, possibly a third wind by the time they're finished. But I do think that things come around again. And I think that one thing we found in doing this story through the public documents is that there's a lot of care for this property. People care about it. It matters.
0: That's wonderful to hear. Well, thank you so much, Melody, for taking the time to to talk with us. And we will check in soon. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Five Dubs with Rebecca Snyder. Please subscribe and leave us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts so that others can find us. What do you want to know about local journalism? Email me at rsnyder, S-N-Y-D-E-R, at Interested in supporting our podcast and journalism? Please donate to our 501c3 Press Foundation. Find out more and see the full episode list and show notes at www.5-dubs.com.